Welcome to the Cult of Variable podcast. This is episode number six. I'm Bill Whitson, owner of Cult of Variable and your host. This time I'm talking with Joseph Lofthouse. Joseph is really well known in the freelance plant breeding community where he works with a very large number of different species and shares that work widely and collaborates with many people. And he's done a lot to popularize plant breeding as a hobby or as a freelance uh, occupation. He's most well known for breeding land race crops, and I'll let him explain what uh, what a land race is and uh, how he goes about that. Joseph Lofthouse, welcome to the Cultivariable Podcast. Hi, William. It's Joseph. Hey, how's it going? Good, thank you. So, are you getting cooked out there, or uh, or is it all right? Yeah, so it's already cooking, but that's all right. If it gets too bad, I'll just tell you. USOL. <laughs> yeah, that's all, that's all good. We can always stop and, and pick it up again another day if we need to. That's fine. I, uh, I'm i a total okay. wuss because, you know, here, if it gets to 70, that's really hot. I, I start to feel like I'm dying uh-huh. if it gets to 75, and <laughs> that almost never happens. So I can't imagine. Yeah, that. well, it was about 95 when I left the house. Good so. God. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't have a good cell signal anywhere that I have air conditioning that's quiet, so I'm just sitting in a park uh, underneath the cell tower. Perfect. I learned pretty early on that it's, uh, these things go better without any preparation, so I usually just dive right okay. in, and, uh, and we, we go where it goes, and uh, it lasts as long as we want it to, and uh, if you're getting too hot and we're done, that's, that's good, and we can, uh, we can always pick it up later if we want to cover more. You have been at this for quite a while now. I'm not sure what more than ten years. About ten years as a honest to God conscious plant breeder. Um, before then, I was a, well. I grew up farming, and so I was a seed saver from as for as long as I can remember. But I only got intentional about improving my varieties about 10 years ago. So so what was the journey to get there? What's your what's your background and and how did you how did you end up at this point? So I grew up on a farm that was my family farm for 150 years. And so we did the normal farming things, uh grow varieties and save seed from them and whatever. And then I grew up and went to college and graduated, which was so out of uh, out of character for my family. And I went and worked in a chemical laboratory and was building, shall we say, agricultural poisons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that didn't work for me. And so I came home and went back to farming because it was a easy on my conscience so how long how long did that take how long did you uh, how long did you work in that field before you just decided screw it i'm i'm farming 20 years altogether so that was a big big change for you yes um and in the process i took about poverty and joined the ministry and so i turned you know, my whole life basically upside down and backwards. And I miss the lucrative, 
pay that the chemical department gave sure. me, but whatever. <laughs> uh, I really love my current life and who I currently am. And once in a while when I think about going back to to the other way of life, I just can't do it. I, I totally get it. We're, we're very similar in this regard. Uh, you know, I had a similar length of uh, previous career that paid very well. And, uh, you know, although I haven't taken a vow of poverty from a, from a practical standpoint, <laughs> that's, that's really what this, uh, what this business is. So, uh, for, for a practical standpoint, you're a farmer, so you might as well. Have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I get it. I get it. I've never, I've never been happier than, uh, than doing the work that, uh, that I'm doing now. And, uh, and the money just, uh, doesn't really matter that much. Yeah. Well, I, I find a lot of the things I do, I don't need money for. For example, if I grow my own food, if I grow my own seeds, then I don't have to have money to buy those things. Right. So it, it works out. So you're, uh, I, I think the thing you're most well known for probably is the, is the method of breeding that you... Uh, I don't know if you employ exclusively, but that you you seem to employ the most, which is which is uh, I guess modern land racing. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, what what yeah. a land race is, and particularly what it what it is in the way that that you use it? So my definition of a land race is a genetically diverse crop that is locally adapted, um, and the way that I most commonly get to a land race population is I'll plant a bunch of varieties, let them promiscuously pollinate, and then select out of those varieties what grows best on my farm. And what I found by doing that is the first year I eliminate a whole bunch of junk, things that are just not going to produce at all on my farm in the growing conditions that happened that year and then the second year I have a, a fairly decent crop but the third year is when it really becomes magical and the crops just start thriving for me um, doesn't happen with every species all the time like watermelon is continually unhappy at my place but I still keep trying but for the most part anything that will will can be coaxed to grow for me about the third year is when it's things fall together and work really well after that what uh, what's promiscuous pollination so in the indus in the seed industry they have what they call open pollination which in theory means that we don't really know who's the daddy but then people go to extreme lengths to make sure that there's no crossing going on right. and to so I use the term promiscuous pollination to imply that we really don't know who's the daddy and we really don't care. And we want to, and I encourage plants to cross-pollinate. I encourage varieties to cross-pollinate. Um, there's some crops like beans and tomatoes that might only cross, say, one time in 100 or one time in 200 for beans, or maybe it's uh, 5% for tomatoes. 
but I still watch my garden for those naturally occurring hybrids. And then I make sure and plant more of those next year so that I can encourage continuous change of the genetics so that I, I don't like doing inbreeding. I like everything that I'm growing to be outcrossing as much as it's possible. So your garden is where heirlooms come to die. Yes. <laughs> um, and it, it's sad because people will send me these, their varieties, and it's their grandfather's sister's uncle's cousin's friend that came from <laughs> Germany. And, and, and I take all of those seeds and I dump them together into a bottle with all of the other seeds from all of the other stories. And, and so I just have a bottle of tomato seeds, which are foreign tomato seeds is what I call them. And then I'll plant a pinch of that. And maybe one out of 50 will do good for me and be acceptable for me. And so the, I start growing that and that, and I lose all the stories and all the names, but I keep the web of life going. Uh, what's going to do well for me is allowed to do well. It's allowed to cross-pollinate as much as it will with my other varieties. So, yeah, heirlooms come to die at my place. Or, or, or at least get amnesia, <laughs> I suppose. Yes, but, but they come to forget. <laughs> well, so do you, do you ever help these, uh, do you ever help pollination along with, uh, with the, with some of these crops that are, uh, that are less likely to be wind or insect pollinated, or do you just let nature take its course and, and, and look for happy crosses? Well, I'm pretty much a lazy farmer and I don't do very many, uh, manual pollinations. However, I'm working on for example, a tomato project where I want the tomatoes to be self-incompatible. In other words, they need to have a pollen or a, a pollinator because they can't pollinate themselves. And so I've been I've been doing manual crosses with those, and I do manual crosses um, between species of squash um, because that's very unlikely to happen naturally. I mean, it does, but you got to pay so much attention to it. And, and so I do a few of those manual crosses between species. Got it. So you said it takes about, it takes about three years before the magic really starts to happen. And, and then what? Uh -huh. what, what, ha what? What's the process for, the, for subsequent years then? So after that, I sort of do... Um, gentle selection towards traits that I like. For example, I like my fruits to taste good, and so I always taste taste fruit or taste every fruit before I save a seed from it to make sure that I enjoy the the flavors and and whatever. Um, my chef that I grow wash for, they save seeds for me, they taste them, if they don't like a fruit, they throw the seeds away, and I don't even have to screen it afterwards. <laughs> That's great. Um, but, and I, and if something really pops out at me that I really adore for some reason, I might save seeds from that separate and plant them in a different field, just so I can explore what's going on. 
for example, um, people always ask me for smaller squash. And so I was watching my squash land race and pulling the smaller fruits out and growing them separate. And so now I have a population of squash that are about two pounds squash instead of my 10 to 15, which is what I favor. What's, uh, what's the attraction in a, in a smaller squash? Um, people want to cut a squash and eat it for supper and not have leftovers. No. And, and that's, anyway, I think that's where the attraction comes from. Got it. That would not have occurred to me as something to select for. (laughs) Usually it's the opposite. How big can I make these things? Yeah, well, I like about a 10 to 15 pound squash because that can fit in people's ovens. It, um, it's productive. Um, it's easy to work with and carry. Um, and, and you get like two or three squash per plant, regardless of whether they're huge squash or small squash. So you might as well grow larger squash to get more productivity. Right. Is, is my, is my farmer mentality. But then I, I have my, uh, my feeding my community mentality and people want smaller squash. And so what do you do? <laughs> sure, sure. Give the people what they want. Uh, um, well, my knee-jerk activity, or my knee-jerk reaction is to say, you get what I want you, what I want to grow for you. And if you don't like it, then you're, too bad <laughs> but, but I am growing a pepo winter squash this year and I think that they're they're a horrid species <laughs> but <laughs> but people beg me for them and so what am I going to do I'm going to grow squash for them and I'm actually working on a on a pepo winter squash project now and I might actually start selecting them for flavor. Uh, that I have to taste all of those. In the meantime, whatever. That that is that your <laughs> objection that is, is kind of the most bland species of squash. Yes, it's the most bland species. Well, I'm, I'm um, sure that uh, with a little creative crossing uh, and uh, a lot of selection, you could probably overcome that. I'm I'm. I'm working on some interspecies crosses where I might can bring some flavor in from other species, and that would that would please me if that actually turns out. I wonder if uh, the blandness is related to the to the storage ability of the squash, though. That maybe there's a reason why they're bland. Um, maybe. Well, well, see, see, to me, food that is high in carotenes is really tasty. And food that is lacking carotene seems to be ucky to me. And so, so the pepos tend to be low carotene, and I wonder if that's part of the flavor issue for me personally. Makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about that as I sit here. Do I, do I detect the same thing? And I think, I think I do. I think in general... Yeah, high carotene varieties, high carotene species are generally more appealing. So that's interesting. Yeah. 
and and that that's one of the breeding goals of just about all of the species I worked on is to have more carotenes in them. Makes sense. What what was the first crop that you worked with? Well, the first land race crop that I grew was Astronomy Dimini sweet corn, mm-hmm. and that was created by Alan Bishop in Pekin, Indiana, and he combined about 200 varieties of hybrid and open-pollinated sweet corn and heirlooms, and I got some of the offspring of, of that, and that was my first land race crop that I grew. And the first land race that I actually worked on and developed was uh, cantaloupes. Um, and the first year I grew them, they didn't even ripen a fruit for me. But some of them produced some green fruits that were um, that had viable seeds in them, and so I saved those. And I I think I planted like 30 varieties the first year. And then the second year I got like two plants that were that ripened fruit, and they ripened like a bushel of fruit each and so they were you know just amazing plants and then it was the third year was like the magical year and I was harvesting you know a truckload of muskmelons to take to market and that was that was so delightful <laughs> and and since then I've been tasting every fruit before I save seeds from it and so they're perfect for my taste. And they're smelly and flavorful and sweet. And I had to stop calling them cantaloupes because they're really not the same product as what the stores are selling as a cantaloupe. So I call them muskmelons today. Uh, just because it gets at the, the essence of what they actually are. <laughs> I, I was I was never sure because I you know I can't grow cantaloupe in this climate, so I I've, I I was never uh-huh. sure if the reason they just taste so kind of insipid from the store is because they are maybe harvested early and you know aren't fully ripe and ready to go, or if they just aren't very good varieties. But it it, it seems that uh, you've uh, unlocked the secret there. I think that it's both. They they were picked green, and they're not ripe. But also, I think it's tremendously variety dependent. And what was the what was the big what was the big problem with uh, with growing cantaloupe for you? It was that they didn't uh, they didn't mature in time for your short season. I think it was short season. Is is what it boiled down to, um, or maybe the the cold nights because we get intense radiant cooling at night. For example, it might be 95 right now, but it was uh, in the 40s overnight. Um, and so so we get a lot of that kind of thing going on as well. So you're at high elevation in, in Utah. About high, how high up are you? So we're 5,200 feet. 5,200 feet. So that's a... So, as you've said, you, you get pretty hot days, you get pretty cold nights. And, and what's the length of your growing season? 
So um, it depends on the year, but somewhere between 85 and 100 wow. days of frost-free. Wow. I, I haven't even gotten my shit together in 85 days. Like, <laughs> the... <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, I, I have to be really focused to get my planting done like the last week of May to the first week of June. Because if I miss if I miss my window and don't get something planted, I can't plant it after that and expect to harvest. Yeah. You know, on 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 the warm weather crops. And so yeah, there's a there's a little intense planting season right there after the frosts more or less stop and boot yeah. <laughs> so it's it's intense. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. It's literally, there, there are more than 85 days go by between when I plant my first plant of some species and plant my last. <laughs> so it's a, it's a completely different, uh, yeah, it's a completely different uh, environment. A lot of rain there, I imagine? We, we have no <laughs> rain between June and September. Yeah, that's about the same here. I, I guess that's pretty common in the West. Yeah, but I, I'm blessed to have abundant irrigation water so when people ask me if i'm selecting for drought tolerant plants it's like nope we get water on a regular basis um and we might have like five or ten percent relative humidity and so they're adapted to low or you know arid conditions but not not to drought Interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's a, that's a definite contrast here. We basically get no rain six months out of the year, but the humidity is always mm -hmm. above 90%. And, uh, wow. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it, we probably actually have pretty similar low temperatures year round because here it can dip into the forties pretty much any month of the year. Um, uh -huh. but it rarely gets above 70 so it's, uh, yeah, I've looked at your offerings many times over the years and thought, hmm, might be interesting to try some of that land race that he's put together. But I always think then, uh, <laughs> I've probably already got yeah. more, more well, progress into stuff that I'm working on because the, the, the climates are just so different. Yeah. Um, well, one thing about planting a land race out of its, out of its native habitat, so to speak, is that there might be some things in it that have just the right genetics for a different location. Sure. Or they might they might can rearrange their genetics after two or three years to to work really well. Um, but but it my stuff does best in at my farm. Um, one place that's really surprised me that my things do well is in like southern areas because the my crops jump out of the ground they complete their life cycle as quick as possible and then they die and in in a southern area that's okay because before the bugs come along or the hail comes along or the germs come along or whatever my crops can already be done producing and so it it's a a good way to what do I want to say? 
quick maturing crops in the south seem like a good idea because you can potentially bypass a lot of problems. Right, and I would imagine in some parts of the south they can also uh, grow them as winter crops as well. Yes, or get two or three crops in during a year because I, I get one shot. So I read the other day, uh, I'm not sure if it was on your Facebook page or somewhere else, I don't remember, but you said you're working with about uh, 100 species now, which, which uh-huh. blows my mind. I, I, I'm, I'm somewhere in the vicinity <laughs> of 20, and I'm like, I'm at my max. I, it, if I add something now, I'm dropping something else. So 100 species is amazing. Right. Well, well for, for example, I'm growing nine species of beans. Mm-hmm. And like eight species of tomatoes, um, six species of squash. Um, part of my strategy is that's a way to get genetic diversity into my garden. Okay, so each species isn't a separate um, project. In some of these, in some cases, you're 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 merging multiple species into one into one breeding project. Is that the idea? Um, it's. I would call those a sep- sort of a separate breeding project. Okay, well, my mind is still because... blown then. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for example, I grow Maximus squash, mm-hmm. and I grow those, and I grow Machata squash, and I keep those separate and distinct and whatever. But I also grow uh, interspecies hybrid between those two species. And I don't know what you even call that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think that's I, I I I get how that works, right? I have a number of projects where I'm I'm working on, you know, particularly with in the potato world, right? I'm working on separate species, but then sometimes uh-huh. I cross those species together, and then I end up with another project. Um, so that all right. kind of naturally fits together. But yeah, if you're if you're breeding those species individually, that's, you know, each one of those, that's that's a lot more work, a lot more stuff to keep track of and all in 85 days. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, we'll see. I also have a growing season for cold tolerant crops. Mm-hmm. Um and they're you know, they're outside of the 85 day window. Gotcha. So can you can you give us an overview? I, I mean, I don't expect you to rattle off every one of the one hundred, but what uh, what does that look like? One hundred species. Well, so I'll, so like on the beans, I grow common beans, runner beans, lima beans, peppery beans, cowpeas, lupini, lentils, garbanzos, and grass peas. Wow. And. Some of those are hot weather crops, and some of them are cold weather crops. Um, you know, it's a way of hedging my bets, because if some years the weather might favor cow peas over capri beans or whatever, but if I'm growing lots of different species that have lots of different requirements for growth, then regardless of what the weather's doing, one or the other's going to tend to do well. Um, like on, on squash, I'm growing Maxima squash, Machata squash, Pepos, Argyrosperma, Picifolia, and Laginaria 
um, also known as birdhouse gourds, for example. Hmm. But I eat them. I eat them as, as summer squash. And then I I have a couple of interspecies hybrid projects going on with the squash as well. And for example, we have a. Um, I'm growing apricots from seed, mm-hmm. and so I have a a row of apricots in my in my garden that I'm evaluating for um, for productivity and whatever else, and an ability to avoid the spring frosts and all that kind of stuff. Cool. Long long land racing um, time on fruit trees. Yes. Um, so I'm on my third generation of of walnut breeding. Cool. And I just saw I just saw my first two walnuts from the third generation. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's a project that my family's been working on for oh, since before I was born wow. probably. And we're we're already up to three generations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a to- that's a totally different world. I play around a little bit with uh with bush and, and tree fruits mostly mostly apples for tree fruits but yeah it's uh you uh, really have to be looking for at the long term to do to get much breeding done yeah there. i wish i'd started that 20 years ago oh i know um and the, and for example there's a wild um species that grows on our farm service berry i think it's called mm-hmm. and i collected a few hundred fruits from some of those, and I'm intending to plant those on my farm in the next whenever I plant them this this summer anyway, and just to screen those for better taste, uh, larger fruits, whatever traits I end up selecting them for. So you're you're really in that case starting from a completely wild population. Right. So that's a that's a that's a fun game. New new domestication. I, that you don't see that happen very often. Yeah. Well, there's a also like the wild cabbage mm-hmm. that that grows here, and that's on my on my project list as well. With that one, my my first criteria is to learn how to grow the plant. <laughs> <laughs> that's always that's always the first criteria, isn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and for example, this year you sent me um, tubers from Oka, ooh, Mashua, Uluko, or whatever. Uluko. <laughs> and, yeah, and I, I planted those. Um, they're really not liking it here, but they're growing, so we'll see yeah, I wouldn't, if any of those produce seeds. I wouldn't expect much. I... I... I think it's a I think it's a real long shot. Um, maybe uh, maybe one yeah. day I can produce uh, enough seed of those, you know, a few thousand seeds that uh, you could take a walk, crack at that in uh, in your climate. But those are such such long right. season crops, and you don't even make it to the autumn equinox. I think when uh, when they begin to form tubers, so that it's a it's a tough one. Right. People can't even uh, grow those well just on the other side of our mountains here. So it's, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's a long, uh, it's, they're a long way from home up there. So y- you've been, uh, you've been sharing your varieties for, uh, for a long time. 
and uh, and, and uh-huh. selling them as well. I've seen your stuff turn up in some catalogs. What would you say are your most are your most popular varieties that uh, that that the most people are growing out there now? Um, people really like my um, machado squash, mm-hmm. and I think part of that is because Carol Deppy. Uh, took that under her wing and put it in one of her books and and she started selling the seeds and and so that got distributed fairly widely um, the other variety that's really popular is my dry bean mix and basically that's um, I don't know a few hundred, a thousand whatever it is, varieties of beans that are mostly bush beans and just um, anyway, just a soup bean. Yeah, there's some crosses or, or some uh, some crops I think where it, where mixes are just really one of the best ways to go. You know, they, they, a lot of these uh-huh. a lot of these more you know uh, leaning toward commodity crops. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I just uh, that's how I grow broad beans, for example. I just have a you know, and and broad beans cross-pollinate relatively easily so you know it ends up being more or less a land race but i just think it's the best way uh-huh. to, grow, to grow broad beans i started with about 30 varieties and i just i just let them go and you get an interesting mix of beans they all cook up about the same and um you know some years some some uh-huh. colors do better than others but uh yeah i think right. i think for crops like that it's really it's a really good approach and it's surprising to me that it hasn't been a more common approach uh you know at least at least recently uh-huh. for people to grow that way you know you think about it right people grew one variety you know <laughs> and there's there's really no uh-huh. compelling reason to do that so it's really I, I, I spend some time thinking about that sometimes how did we how did we get to that point and i think maybe a right. part of it is just human nature right you know we we for, for whatever reason we tend to seek out purity in things it's a it's kind of a strange uh-huh. trait but uh, you know part of it also has to be just that that was a you know that that was a strategy by seed companies to um sort of control well, the well, world yeah well it makes sense for a farmer that's harvesting with a combine sure because you want every bean to be ready to harvest on exactly the same day but where I do all of my harvesting by hand, it really doesn't matter if everything matures at the same time. Right. It's what's amazing, I think, is the fact that that small growers and gardeners have been operating as if they are farmers working on large acreages. You know, it's a different, uh-huh. it's a completely different <laughs> value proposition there, but. You know, it's everybody right. who's growing, you know, a hundred square foot garden is acting as if they're growing a thousand acres of, you know, something in terms of uh-huh. varieties that they have chosen. So it's great to see that die. So, <laughs> yeah, I have been growing grains on my farm and harvesting them by hand. And that's a really economical, I don't want to, yeah, I do want to see economical in the sense of, I get a really good return on my investment, on my labor. Mm-hmm. And 
sure the farmer that's harvesting a field next to me might be harvesting um, like bushels in the time that I harvest pounds. I mean, he can harvest a truckload in the in the time I can harvest the. You know. Anyway, but the thing is, it's still really a great return on my labor because for an hour's worth of work, I can harvest enough grain to feed me for a week. Right. Sure. How many pounds of grain are you going to use in a year? Well, not more than fifty if that was all that I ate. Right. You know, and so. But, yeah, the grains have been really, well, I think people ought to be growing grains in their own, in their own yards just because of the, of how much food you get for your labor. Sure. I, it's, it's amazing. I, you know, it's one of those crops that just most gardeners would never, ever think of growing, right? That <laughs> they're going to leave that to right. the farmers. They're going to grow tomatoes. Well, they might, they, they, they'd grow corn. You know, but they would grow it mostly as sweet uh-huh. corn, not as right. not really so much as a grain crop. But yeah, it's it it's I, I think that whole world is starting to really open up to people. It's uh, you know I've seen certainly in you know plant breeding groups and on Facebook lately a lot more interest in in grains and you know older varieties and you know m- more unusual varieties. I this is not uh, a very good grain climate here but uh i do grow some of the you know pseudo pseudo cereals uh, you know quinoa and uh and some of the other uh chenopodiums <laughs> but uh, uh-huh. but uh you know the the problem is high humidity here which is uh which is a little tough but uh right but yeah you're it's it's true you harvest it doesn't look like much but then you start eating it and you think geez this is a lot <laughs> this is a lot of grain <laughs> Uh-huh. Those are uh, those are dense calories. Yeah. So how do you how do you maintain your land races over the long term? How do you how do you keep that diversity level up and and particularly how do you how do you introduce diversity to maintain those land races without um without losing the selection work that you've already done? Yeah, so so my strategy is I plant about 5% new varieties per year. For example, if I'm, if I'm growing squash and somebody sends me squash seed that they want me to try, I'll plant a couple of seeds on the end of a row. Mm-hmm. And if I enjoy it, I'll incorporate it into the land race. If I don't enjoy it, then it's uh, put a little bit of pollen into my land race, but not much. You know, so it's not going to destroy my land race before the next growing season. Um, and if if something's really questionable, I might plant a couple of seeds of it next to a couple of seeds of one of my land races in a separate field. And so then it really can't contaminate my my land races. And I'm generous in my selection. So I don't you know, I don't focus on one plant and I'm only gonna save seeds from that one plant. 
I'd rather save seeds from, say, 80% of the plants that I grow just to keep the the diversity high that way. Um, I plant seeds from previous years just in case one growing season has unusual conditions that are, you know, put a lot of selection pressure on the crop. I kind of want to minimize that. Um I guess that's my main strategy. I, you know, just, and I share my land races with my neighbors, and they send seeds back to me. So that is another way of keeping the diversity high. Mm -hmm. And they might be growing, you know, other varieties in their fields as well. And that, you know, it just, it's a community effort in a lot of ways more than just you know, one farmer doing, doing seed saving. Got it. So you're, you're, you're not, uh, you're not just breeding vegetables. You're also breeding the pests that prey on your vegetables. Uh-huh. <laughs> for, for example, people are always asking me, how do you deal with Colorado potato beetles? And it's like, well, I make a contract with them. They can eat the wild species of selenium that was their preferred food source before people came along. And I will never bother them. I won't put any poisons in my garden or nothing. And unless they get on a domestic plant. And if they get on a domestic plant, it's a death sentence. <laughs> and if they get on a domestic plant more than once in a growing season, then it's a death sentence to the domestic plant as well. Because I I want to keep clear lines differentiating what's a, a acceptable to eat and what's not acceptable to eat. And that works on with the potato beetles because they're a resident population. So the the bugs that are eating in my garden right now hatched in my garden and they got laid on or they grew up eating the wild species and so I'm you know I'm modifying their culture probably the genetics as well to prefer that wild species so uh, so when will people be able to buy Joseph's Colorado potato beetle <laughs> <laughs> well i i might uh put my wild species of weed in my seed catalog one of these years. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I, I love this so much. It's, it's really interesting to me, too, because my, my expectation would be that if you, if you, if you bred potatoes for, so, that, uh, so that they don't appeal to the Colorado potato beetle, I would expect that you would end up with potatoes that are high in glycoalkaloids. Because that is typically how uh -huh. potatoes, um, you know, how, how potatoes develop resistance to that species. So you've you've been doing this. Right. Are your potatoes getting more bitter? No. So that's really but interesting. Colorado. Yeah. Because I also select for sweet. There's yeah, I'll say sweet potatoes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, good tasting potatoes. Got, gotcha. <laughs> 
So that's really interesting. Um, you've, you've undoubtedly stumbled upon something that is, you know, outside the the, the glycoalkylate realm that is that is uh, throwing off those beetles. Well, I, I expect that the foliage has a certain smell. The foliage of the wild plant has a certain smell, and and I'm breeding my beetles to prefer that smell over other smells. Um, ever once in a while when I bring new, like, tomato varieties into my garden, there'll be a variety that will be super attracted, attractive to the beetles. And, and so I just chop that tomato variety out. That's, uh, it, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, I, I love it. It's a, you know, it, 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 in some ways it's kind of an obvious idea, right? Everybody who's, who's uh-huh. breeding breeds for plants that resist pests well. But I love, I love the other aspect of also, you know, selecting the beetles and, uh, you know, not just, not just uh-huh. waging war against them entirely, <laughs> but trying to, trying to make them more compatible with what you're growing. That's just great. Right. Oh, well, basically, I've trained the beetles to eat my weed. <laughs> it's fabulous. So, some some particular crops that you grow that I'm 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 interested to hear about. Um, sweet potatoes. This is a, a fairly new project uh-huh. for you, right? You want to give us a summary of of uh, what you're up to? Sure. So, my mother loves to eat sweet potatoes, and she would love to grow them except we have totally the wrong climate for sweet potatoes. Um, we can grow sweet potatoes. Well, she grows sweet potatoes in a raised bed that has sandy soil. And so it's a little bit warmer, and they like the sandy soil and not the clay soil of my farm. So I'm breeding sweet potatoes for my mother, well, basically my community too, because Nobody grows sweet potatoes here, mm-hmm. other than my mother, kind of thing. <laughs> and, and how many sweet potatoes can you grow in one raised bed? Anyway, so the first thing you need for a breeding project is you need to have seeds. And sweet potatoes are one of those crops that have been cloned for so long that I think something's got messed up with their with their seed producing ability Mm -hmm. and so we cast a wide net and Mark Reed I don't remember where he's at down south somewhere he found a a decorative sweet potato that was prolifically seeding and he was able to make a few crosses of, of that and save some seeds and share them with me. And so that was the beginning of my sweet potato breeding project. And last year, I actually grew sweet potatoes, and they they flowered for me and produced seeds. And so now that I have a... I'm able to produce seeds on my garden, I can start selecting for... Well, my first criteria is always to select for seediness, for the ability to set seeds. And the the decorative strain we found is also day neutral. So it's flowering right now in my garden at the longest day of the year. Awesome. And 
Yeah, so that's awesome. And now that we've got that taken care of, I'm growing sweet potatoes from seed. And we're also, one of our highest priority selection was to select for seeds that germinate quickly. Because when we first started this project, the seeds would take weeks or months to germinate. And we've been able to select now for varieties that are um, they're germinating in like two or three days. Wow. And how many generations was and, that? Um, this has been about the third generation. So it's the magic three again. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I love sweet potatoes, and it is a crop that I would love to grow. They just absolutely do not grow here. They don't flower here. And, uh, you know, uh, the most, the best I I've ever done is, is sweet potatoes, like the, the size of a, of a pencil, you know, and that's what the, that's, Hey, I used to grow uh, those terrible. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really happy to see someone making progress because it's a crop where I just absolutely can't produce my own seed. So I'm hoping that uh, someday I, I, I look, I look, yeah. I look forward to producing enough seed this coming season that I can share with you. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be awesome. That's, uh, I, yeah. So h- how are the, how are the roots looking? Are, uh, are, are you selecting on those yet? Um, I'm not currently selecting on roots. However, the roots are, um, how big around up to an inch in diameter and maybe five inches long. Hey, that's not bad. So yeah, really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I grow I grow lots of tuber crops that produce smaller tubers than that. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so that's uh, that's perfectly edible as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah. How about dahlias? You're you're one of the very few people I know, uh, other than myself, who who has done much with uh, with edible dahlias. You've been working on those for quite a while, right? Yeah. So I I had this I was working on dahlias and I had this perfect variety. The tubers were as big as like a baker tomato or baker potato, just huge. And they didn't have fiber in them and they were just a beautiful, lovely variety. And so I had all these daydreams about growing like 150 pounds of them for my local chef. And then they didn't survive the winter. Oh, (laughs) Yeah, but you, I, assu- I assume you have true seed saved from those, right? Well, I have seed saved from them, and I didn't get my dahlias planted this year. Um, that's one of the problems with the hunting species this year. Sure. Every once in a while you miss planting something. Um, but I expect I'll be planting those again next spring. That's great. Um, how about potatoes? Uh I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen much I haven't seen you write much about potatoes in recent years, but that was certainly one of the crops that uh, th- that I think uh, got you a lot of a lot of attention early on, right? You you have one of the top pages well, on the internet for true potato seed. That is still my most popular web web page. Is my page devoted to potato seeds, mm-hmm. and it's probably my most requested seed as well as far as people just randomly wanting to grow a variety and contacting me about potato seeds. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I'm still growing potatoes. Um, some years are better, better crop years than other years, but I've started growing uh, what I'll call just a, a land race mix. Um, and I'm selecting for seediness mostly. Of course, I select for flavor and, you know, size and whatnot a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm mostly just growing them for producing seed because then people can get them into their gardens and they can select for what works for them. Now, do you grow from seed every year or are you holding over clones and, and regrowing those? I, I do both. Um, also I have a, a little bit of a potato, potatoes are not, don't reliably get winter killed here. So sometimes I'm also growing seed from, you know, the tubers that overwintered in the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty hard to avoid unless you're really up in the tundra. What, uh, what other projects are you working on that are, that are exciting you these days? So my most exciting tomato er, project this year is my tomato project. And basically what I'm attempting is to turn tomatoes into an outcrossing plant species instead of an inbreeding species. Um, Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so, so why, first of all, why do you, why do you want to turn them into a outcrossing species? Okay, so tomatoes, when they were first domesticated, they were moved from Peru to Mexico, and then they were moved from Mexico to um, Europe, and then they went from Europe back to the Americas. And each time those tomatoes got moved, they lost a bunch of genetic diversity. And so it turns out that tomatoes are one of the most inbred crops that we're currently growing, or the most uh, narrow genetic base of any crops that we're growing. And that leads to a lot of problems with diseases and pests, because the the species doesn't have the 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 genetics within it to overcome those pests, and so so we end up growing tomatoes with poisons and all kinds of special techniques when and and a lot of that I attribute it to the inbreeding both the long-term historical inbreeding and the the heirloom mania that sort of swept over tomatoes and everything has to be exactly the same as it was last year. And so if we could get tomatoes outcrossing on a regular basis, then they could rearrange their genetics so that they might could overcome some of those tests and diseases easier. Um, and so part of my project is the genes to make those so that they would be mandatory outcrossers are located in the wild tomato species. 
And so if we if we bring those genes for for self incompatibility from the wild species, we'll also bring other traits along with them, for example, maybe better resistance to frost or to blights or bugs or whatever. And and, and I presume that uh, there are a lot of uh, a lot of uh, less appealing traits that you bring from the wild species as well, as is so often the case, right? Um, I don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Um, because one thing I've noticed about the the wild species is they tend to have more flavor. Um, the fruits tend to be sweeter. They have a lot of aromas in the foliage that I'm not familiar with from domestic tomatoes. And so it might be that we'll end up with a tomato that is tastes fruity or that tastes sweet or something along those lines that's totally different than what domestic tomatoes are. And so I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, one thing that is is definitely happening happening with the the tomatoes is that they're becoming decorative the the flowers are are bold and they're high up above the foliage and they're coming in big clusters so so they'll i think in the end they'll look really great in a flower garden as well as um as a vegetable so the uh the the self-incompatible tomatoes, I guess, because they are insect-pollinated, have larger, showier flowers to attract that attention. Is that uh, is that the idea? Yeah. Yes. Interesting. And originally, this project started because I had one variety of tomatoes that the bumblebees just wouldn't leave alone. And it got me to thinking about you know, cross-pollination in tomatoes. And we grow like tomatillos, Mm -hmm. which require a pollinator. And they're a perfectly acceptable agricultural crop. I mean, there isn't any problems because of the self-incompatibility in the tomatillos. So I don't see any reason why we couldn't adopt the same kind of strategies for growing tomatoes. Sure. It's what I would assume from your philosophy, land land race everything. Right. And yeah. And we'll see originally with tomatoes, I was just paying intense attention to them to try to find the occasional naturally occurring hybrid, which is, you know, maybe 5% of the, the population or whatever. And that was that was an okay strategy, and it is still turning into a land race, but it's taking a long time to do that. Whereas if every seed is a new hybrid every single generation, um, it makes it really easy to do land race plant breeding. It makes it really easy to throw hundreds of thousands of genetically unique individuals, call them varieties if you want, at a problem to see what, 
how the plants are going to solve that problem for you. Because I really don't know, I can't predict ahead of time what traits that is going to uh, give bug resistance, for example. Maybe the leaves are hairy and the bugs can't get to the plant. Maybe it has a smell that the bugs find unattractive. Maybe there's a chemical in the leaves. And I can't predict that. But if I can generate hundreds of thousands of, of seedlings and just throw them in a field and see what survives, then that's where we can start solving a lot of the problems with the tomatoes. And it looks like you have a, a fair number of people collaborating with you on this project. Is that right? Um, in my local valley, I have like 10 people that are making interspecies hybrids for me this year. That's great. And basically we're doing that from just natural cross-pollination, but we're growing, they're growing them in isolation in, you know, various places around the valley. And I also have a ton of internet collaborators on this project. And in fact, one of my most exciting high-priority crosses that I was intending to do this year was actually done last year by one of my collaborators. Um, that was um, Malcolm, and I think he's in near Denver. And so that saved me a year on my breeding project because someone else had already made the cross for me. That's that's great. I love uh, that's that's the kind of mm -hmm. thing I love to hear. I've not had uh, had right. great success with uh, with collaborating on projects. I think because in, in a lot of cases, my the the range in which the the crops that I work with is is so narrow. But uh, but I really uh -huh. I really want to find a way to uh, to leverage that a little better. It's really it's really inspiring to see you work with a large number of people like that and uh, and and get that kind of additional progress. Uh huh. Um. Well, I'm just thrilled because like on my, oh, I wanted to mention on the tomatoes, there's, there's another, there's sort of two strategies. And one of them is I can select for flowers that are just more bolder, attractive to pollinators and that have their female parts exposed more so that they can, they can cross pollinate more. And and so that might move the the natural pollination cross pollination rate say to ten percent instead of the five percent of domestic tomatoes. But then I could also incorporate the self incompatibility traits. And so I'm, I'm working on both of those. Um, and the collaborators have been really helpful on you know a lot of those things because. Um, I'm just one person, basically. <laughs> what uh, it, I mean, it sounds like the response has been pretty good. But how would you how would you characterize the response to this? I, I would assume that there would be a little bit of resistance uh, among the the tomato crowd, which is you know typically very much a you know heirloom heirloom purity crowd, right? Um, they're not my target audience. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Gotcha. Well, we'll see. Okay. See, if ten years from now we get these 
self-incompatible tomatoes working and really, um, and they're outperforming heirlooms and outperforming the seed company um, hybrids, then they could be adopted wholesale. Got it. But um, be- because hybrids tend to outperform heirlooms by about 50% as far as yield if you do, you know, careful scientific measurements on mm-hmm. it. And what if the self-incompatible tomatoes exceeded the hybrids by another 50%? Sure, that would convince you know, a that, lot of people, I think. Yeah, and so, you know, it's still a long ways off because right now people like their purity. And the biggest kick or pushback I get on this is, but they won't be pure. <laughs> I'm like, whatever. Yeah, well, I think we're I, I think we're making progress on that front. You know, I, I def I it's hard it's hard to say because I'm so I'm I'm so much in the plant breeding world that I'm not sure how it looks from the outside. Uh. But it, it it seems like it seems like there's a much it, it seems like there's a lot more interest in you know amateur and, and and freelance plant breeding than there than there used to be. I mean, even even ten years ago on the uh, internet, it was so hard to find much information at all, and 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 it's it's really expanded a lot. So I I I I think that means that there's a lot more interest in this, and maybe some people are moving away from that purity fixation. Right. Uh, well, I certainly spend a lot of effort in my writings saying that purity doesn't matter as much as people think it ought to. Right. So your your tomatoes. You, you, you mentioned that you're you're crossing these wild tomatoes to to eventually produce uh-huh. this land race. What wild tomatoes are you working with? What what do they contribute? And uh, and how did you get them? So I'm currently growing domestic tomatoes and three varieties that are fully. Uh, compatible with domestic tomatoes, that's Chismani, Galapagos, and Pimpinilla folium. And I, I'm not using those in my, those wild species in my breeding projects, but I'm, I'm growing them just so I have options later on if, if anything appeals to me. Mm-hmm. And then I'm growing uh, two fairly closely related species, uh, Solanum pinellii and Solanum abrochites, and they are self-incompatible, but they can act as pollen donors to domestic tomatoes, and so I'm growing hybrids um, of those this year, and I'm also growing some wild tomatoes from the Peruvianum complex, and I'm growing. Peruvianum and Cornelio Muleri, and they are, they basically can't cross with domestic tomatoes without all sorts of funky stuff going on. But I'm still growing them and making populations that that work for me in my area, and maybe I plant them right next to my 
my breeding projects and maybe once in a while a, a straight pollen will get out and do something or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm currently growing the, the second and third generation of those wild crosses. And so this year I'm I'm focusing a lot of effort on to selecting for plants that I think are self-incompatible and that have wide open flowers. Um, so maybe next year will be the magical year kind of thing. How do you determine if they're self-incompatible? Do you just wait a while and see if they develop fruit before you start pollinating? Yes. Um, that That was my strategy so far because first thing in the spring before my pollinators became active there were a lot of or there were some plants that were flowering but they weren't producing fruit and so so you end up with flower stems that are just empty and so I'm suspecting that those ones might be self-incompatible and I need to figure out some kind of a strategy for confirming that, maybe bagging a, a flower cluster or something later on and manually pollinating something just to make sure. Yeah. But another strategy I might use is to to take pollen from, say, a wild species and use it to pollinate those plants. And if the, if the, if it takes, that would indicate that the self-incompatibility mechanism is has been restored in those plants. Aha. Uh-huh. Got it. So, what do you think? How many how many years do you think it's going to take before you get uh before you get a result that uh that that uh is is going to produce a reasonable amount of food for you? So, I know it's just a guess. Hybrid that I was telling you about one of my collaborators made a cross last growing season which and they used in the cross one of the ver- varieties that I had developed, which I call Big Heel, mm-hmm. which was basically my perfect um, tomato for my garden. It's a beef steak, so it has 12-ounce fruit. It has yellow fruits, which is my preferred flavor in a tomato. And it's super early, and it's determinant. And so, um, basically, that was my ideal domestic tomato. And I made that cross to, to the wild tomatoes. And then this spring, I, I crossed that to um, a different species. So that is now a three-species hybrid. And I think that... Well, I will have fruits from that that are, or I'll have seeds from that in the next week or two. And so my intention is to to grow those in the greenhouse during the summer so I can harvest them in the fall or harvest, you know, the next generation of seeds by fall. And a lot of hope for that. Cool. Um, I, Yeah. 
I, I think one of the most interesting things to come out of this are the uh, are, are the the flavors that you've mentioned of tomatoes. I'm I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm in that minority of people that find uh, tomato flavor really unappealing. I I, I really can't eat a raw uh -huh. tomato. But uh, there there are some there are some you know related species like uh, like the, uh, the the Cape gooseberry that I think uh, taste pretty nice. So I could imagine a much fruitier yeah, tomato being really being really appealing. Yeah, wouldn't it, wouldn't that be amazing if we had Cape gooseberry tasting tomatoes? <laughs> I'd probably eat that. Yeah, it's uh, uh, that that would really be a it, an interesting. Uh, change i'm not sure how well people would uh would would like it in general the, the people who like you know tomato flavor but there's definitely a minority of uh -huh. us out there who don't yeah who 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 just uh can't quite can't quite take the taste of uh of regular tomatoes so that mm -hmm. that would be a really interesting outcome my plant breeding goals are my plant breeding goals are a little bit off of other people's regarding tomatoes because of my short season issue. Mm -hmm. And so I, I target um, oh, determinant tomatoes, where a lot of other people prefer indeterminates. And so that, that may be an issue going forward that you, you know, I might want to address in this tomato breeding project. Well, it seems like it would be uh, easy enough for somebody to make that adjustment if they've got a if they've got a group of uh, of outcrossing tomatoes. They just need to mix those seeds up with some indeterminate types and off to the races, right? Yeah. Well, well, currently I have both types in in my population, um, so I may end up selecting one population for me and maintaining one that's genetically diverse for. You know, people can select out of it what they want. Awesome. I'm not sure how many years it's been now, uh, but uh, not too long ago, you joined the Open Source Seed Initiative, and you've been releasing yes. some of your work, some or all, I'm not sure, uh, of your work some. under uh, under the uh, OSSI pledge. What's uh, uh -huh. what? What's your opinion on on open source seed? Um. <laughs> it well i I treat all of my seeds as if they're public domain mm -hmm. and and people always want to ask my permission to do this or that or the other with varieties that I've developed, and I'm like it's not my variety. that variety came from ten thousand years of illiterate plant breeders, and I'm just as current custodian and so that's about where my sentiments lie <laughs> okay fair enough i think that's i i think that's a, a good and uh, and accurate outlook on things yeah i think i'm gonna let that topic go <laughs> just as well <laughs> yeah i won't try to drag you into any controversial statements there so let's see um um I, I I was specifically avoiding any controversial Fair enough. Uh, discussion. No, no, no. <laughs> so I should ask you your opinion on uh, genetic engineering then next. I I I.
I support genetic engineering, um, but not for the purposes of selling poisons. Got it. So that's so that's really interesting. It, that, that's actually very close to my my view on the subject. Um, so you say you support genetic engineering. So if you if there were a genetically engineered variety out there that had traits that you were interested in, would you be willing to incorporate that into a land race? Yes, I would. For, for example, um, golden rice mm -hmm. seems to me like a, a perfect um, use of genetic engineering. Um, and if I could grow rice, I would incorporate the golden rice trait into my into my plant breeding. Um, another, for example, um, day neutral chia, mm -hmm. which, which they which has become available because of irradiating species. Um, I would grow that in my garden. Wow, I can I can can hear your seed sales dropping as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's a, it's a controversial well, topic, but I, I it's I I I find I, I I find your position refreshing, undoubtedly because it's it's similar to my own. Um, but uh -huh. uh, yeah, I'm not I'm I'm not a huge proponent of genetic engineering, but neither am I particularly scared by it, and and I I think that what we're ultimately after more than anything are our sources of diversity to help move breeding ahead. And so it's, uh, yeah, I'm encouraged that, uh, that, that, that you, that you think that way. And I'm also like you appalled at the idea of creating crops that are able to be soaked endlessly in poison, uh, in order to, to, to make ever greater monocrops. I think that's a, that's a horrible use of genetic engineering. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, unlikely that uh, this is going to become a practical consideration anytime soon, uh, given that uh, that most of these are uh, on fairly long patents and most of the traits aren't really that interesting anyway. But it's it's possible. There, some, of yeah. the, some of the traits that have been introduced into potatoes uh, for disease resistance, uh, particularly since they've been crossed over from, from wild potatoes instead of... Um, from you know more distant species are are, are pretty interesting, mm -hmm. but it will be a while before those those really open up and become possible uh, to to breed with. Right, but but I take a long term view of the world because what's a twenty year patent? I mean, whatever. I've been growing for fifty years now. True, but uh, you know. Life is short. <laughs> the, the world, the uh, world goes on, but I'll only be here so long. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we've kind of approached it obliquely, but we haven't uh, talked about it, it directly. What's your philosophy on on uh, fertilizing and using uh, pesticides and herbicides uh, at your farm? So I, I don't use any fertilizer, any compost, or any pesticides on my farm. Um, so you, ne you, my strategy, you never fertilize? 
Well, I won't say never because um, when I'm growing my tomatoes in the greenhouse, mm-hmm. I I use a water soluble fertilizer on those. Gotcha. Just because it's such an unnatural place to be growing a tomato. Um, but on my on my crops in my fields, I don't fertilize. Do you have unusually rich soil? I have fertile soil. Um, it's the the bottom of a lake bed during the last ice age, and it's um, clay based, so it holds on to nutrients really well. And so, but but also I I grow cover crops, and I grow lots of weeds, and I turn the weeds back into into the soil. But my strategy is that I'm a plant breeder and I want this growth for subsistence level farming. And that means that fertilizers are too expensive to be buying anyway. And so it's easier to change the genetics of the crop to grow in low fertility soil than it is to change the soil. And it must work because it sounds like over time you're getting increasing yields despite not adding fertilizer back into the soil. Right. And and it's beautiful when my crops go from my place to somebody that actually fertilizes because they just really thrive and are really robust and glorious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I love I love grow reports. <laughs> I think we ought to move towards wrapping it up. Uh, the the cell uh, connection is getting worse as we go on, and so I'm a little worried about the uh, audio quality from here on. If people want to get involved with your work, how do they get in touch with you, Where and where can they learn more? Okay, so I have an email address, which is garden at lofthouse.com, or I have a website, which is HTTP um, slash slash whatever. <laughs> uh, I, I have a website uh, website which is garden and I will put links to these up up on the the website when I post this podcast. Okay, thank you. And uh, I might point out that another uh, good place to read about a lot of Joseph's work is at the Homegrown Goodness Forum, where. He's uh, also I, the moderator, <laughs> the the only the, well, the last standing a, moderator, maybe. Yeah, that could work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'll put a link up to that too. Any other places? Uh, you you have a you have a uh, land race blog as well, right? Um, I wrote for a, a while for Mother Earth News. So if you type in Mother Earth News and Loft House or Loft House Land Race. You'll find my articles there. All right. This was awesome, and I hope that we can do it again before too long and get some updates on your projects. And uh, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, William. And thank you, community, for listening. That's it for this episode. I won't make any promises about when the next episode is coming since I've been pretty unreliable on that front so far, but I've got some great guests lined up, and uh, we should have something coming before too long.